If you've got your Bible, take it. I want you to take two of your fingers and stick one of them in Esther chapter 1, Ezra chapter 1, excuse me, and then take the other finger and stick it in Haggai 1. If you don't know where Haggai is, it's one of those books you probably don't visit a lot. If you go to Malachi, the very last book in the Old Testament, hang a left and go two books past that. That'll be Haggai. So Malachi, Zechariah, Haggai. While you're finding your place there, I want to encourage you to look at your bulletin for just a second. In your bulletin is a prayer guide. We've been putting these in your bulletins the last few weeks as we walk through this New Day uh, capital campaign as we're preaching to it, teaching to it in small groups. This is an opportunity for you to pray. Pray for yourself, pray for your family, pray for your church, that we would hear from the Lord and follow the Lord. And so we've prayed... The first week, praying for ourselves. Lord, what would you have me to do? What do you want to do in my life and through my family? And then last, this past week, we were praying, Lord, what do you want to do in, in us as your church? God, what is it you're speaking? What are you leading us to do? This week, we're praying for evangelism. We're praying for opportunities to share the gospel. Uh, anything and everything that we do as a, as a church, as a New Testament church, should be done with at least one view to evangelism. I mean, think about all the opportunities that we've got around us this, because of this weekend. Uh, we've had trees that have fallen. We've had all sorts of things, that uh, disasters that have taken place. There's your opportunities to go with the hands and feet of Jesus and love people to Jesus simply through service and taking an opportunity to share the gospel with them. Friday morning, I noticed that there was a tree down right across the yard of the new house has been built next to mine and and they're trying to close in this house and I, so I figured man they're going to want to get this up sure enough one of the guys who's been building comes over and and he's out there and I hear the chainsaw start up so I try to eat a bowl of cereal real quick so I can run out there and help him he had it cut up by the time I got finished and I helped him carry it off to the other side why was I doing that because I want to be a brother who loves people I didn't share the gospel with him I've already invited him to church so he knows that he has an invitation here. I was just simply there to serve and to come alongside of him. And so we have opportunities to love people, to serve people, and obviously we want to do all of that to share the gospel with people. This month we were, we were walking through New Day campaign. We're talking about what it means for us as a church, what it's going to involve with us as a church, what it's going to call and, and, and require of us as a church and so we have been talking about that and obviously as we talk about that we are talking about money you know money is about as popular of a subject in a, in a Baptist church as a snake in a flower bed when you're planting flowers it's about as popular as a, as a rocking chair in a room full of cats and a cat doesn't want that he doesn't want his tail to be smashed you don't want to see a snake when you're in the flower bed you don't want any of those things and so I understand that as we talk about that this subject it is uncomfortable for everyone it is uncomfortable for me as the one who's preaching it number one it's uncomfortable because I'm speaking to my own self my own family situation and I'm also speaking to you and I understand your uncomfortableness with it the the lack of comfort with this subject. And so it is a very unwelcome subject in the church. I heard about a church in the deep south whose preacher was moving toward the end of his sermon and with growing crescendo, he, would, he was saying these, these statements and the, and the church was responding. He, he said the church, like the crippled man, has got it's to get up and it's got to walk and the church responded. That's right, preacher. Let it get up. Let it walk. 
And he added to that statement, he said, this church is like Elijah on Mount Carmel. It's got to get up and run. And the church said, like Elijah on Mount Carmel, let's run, preacher, let's run. And he said, the church has got to mount up on, with wings like eagles, and it's got to fly. And the church responded and said, oh, preacher, let it fly. Let it fly, preacher. And then the preacher said, now, if this church is going to fly, it's going to take money. One old dude in the congregation says, let it walk, preacher. Just let it walk. We're there, aren't we? Sometimes. We don't like this subject. It's a hard subject. But as we prepare for our renovation and construction projects, obviously phase projects, dealing with phase one first and phase two on down the road, we are in this campaign. We've called it New Day. We believe that God is doing a new work in us. He wants to do a new work through us. We're going to build on the history that we have, the 172 plus years. The, we're in the 173rd year as a church. God has been doing a lot of things in us over these several decades, and he wants to continue to use us in this county, in this state, in this nation, and throughout the nations of the world. And so how can he prepare us better to do that? So we've used the last two Sundays to talk about the two incredible stories that we find in the Bible of the two greatest building projects that we find, the construction of the tabernacle in Exodus and the construction of the temple in First Chronicles. We saw there that in today's value that over $60 million went into the construction of the, temp the tabernacle. There we saw in Exodus how Moses oversaw that project. And then last week we moved into 1 Chronicles 29 and we saw where this concept, this, this idea was birthed in the heart of David and it was carried out by his son, King Solomon. And they built this temple, the greatest building to ever be built up to that point. It's the beautiful structure. It sat on top of Mount Zion for nearly 400 years. So last week we looked at the temple and it's construction and its financing. We talked about how it was financed and we saw there that David opened up the treasuries of the kingdom and he gave lavishly to this product project. We also saw how David gave up of his own personal treasure over 4.3 billion dollars in today's monetary value here in our country. David gave sacrificially, David gave willingly, and David gave generously to this project. Along with him came leaders and the people of, of Judah who, and Israel who generously gave to the project. God was doing a great work in their midst. We see there in 1 Chronicles 29, 16 where David prayed, O oh Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house where your holy name comes from your hand and it's all your own. We've seen there in the word of God how everything that the people gave, it wasn't something that they got themselves. God is the one who gave it to them and they're simply stewarding it for the purposes and for the glory of Almighty God. So the temple was constructed. The people came from around the world as we look through the scriptures, we see that they came to worship there and to gaze in wonder and admiration to this beautiful house that was built to the glory of God so that the nations would see that there is a God in Israel. But during the ensuing centuries, we read how the nation of Israel declined spiritually, it declined morally, and all that led to the corresponding decline in their national strength and their solidarity. And so they began to crumble from the inside. They began to face the judgment of God upon themselves for their sin. As a result, they fell victim to the pressures of rising empires from the east. Eventually, because of their sin and disobedience, they were brutally, Judah was brutally conquered and, and, and ca carried away by the Babylonian empire. 
All of Jerusalem was plummeled. All of Jerusalem was plundered. The temple of Solomon in all its glory was torched and burned to the ground. The scream of the Jewish people echoed to heaven and to hell. Most of Israel perished and what survivors were left were largely carted off to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar there in 586 B.C. This was the most tragic event in the Old Testament. And for two generations, as God told the people through Jeremiah, for 70 years, they lived in exile. But I want you to know something good this morning. Even under the judgment and the penalty of God, he still loved them. He never forsook them. And there was going to be a time when he brought them back to the land and to restore worship once again. According to the book of Ezra, God placed within the hearts of the people a desire to send a remnant back to Jerusalem, to clear away the rubble, to rebuild the temple, and to restore worship. Again, we're presented with a question that's been raised in each of our other stories that we've looked at. How in the world could such a people have the resources for this project? Remember who this people is. They're a tattered, traumatized, and, and scattered people who are living in exile. How could that type of people in that sort of situation gather the needed resources to rebuild the temple. How is this rebuilding project going to be financed? As you read the scriptures, you see something very surprising. It's something that we've already seen before. God doesn't change his methods. God begins to do within these people what he was doing with Moses and what he was doing with David. He was going to provide the money, not through some sort of spectacular uh, means. He wasn't going to drop it from the sky like manna. He wasn't going to have aliens deliver it in a spaceship. It was just going to simply flow through the pockets and the purses of the people. So the book of Ezra, if you've got your finger there in chapter 1, begins like this. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. So that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. However, or whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem." And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. You see something familiar and similar in this story. He says, let the people provide the silver and the gold and the goods and the livestock. Anyone whose heart God moves, let them give valuable gifts and free will offerings. God is stirring the hearts of the people, and as a result, they freely want to give to God's project. This is the same strategy that God used to raise the funds in the tabernacle and in the temple. And so we have a further word here. Look at chapter 2, verses 68 and 69. Some of the heads of families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, made freewill offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. 
According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priests' garments. How did they give? Ezra tells us they gave according to their ability. That means each one of them had a different ability to give. Some gave more, some gave less, but they all gave according to their ability, and they all gave freely as God so moved their hearts to give. And so this is the Lord's method of financing those programs, and I believe it's the Lord's method of financing his project that he's doing in us and through us. So they came, they cleared away their rubble, and they began to rebuild the building, which had been the most beautiful and meaningful edifice on earth. And then the story takes a turn to the left. How many of you this morning realize and recognize this, that anytime God's doing something amongst his people, there's going to be an enemy who stands against it? Y'all understand that? That anytime God's doing a work, there's an enemy that's going to fight against that work. Now, ultimately, that enemy is Satan. It's the devil. It's Lucifer. He's the one who stands against what God is doing. You go to Genesis chapter 3, and God has created everything that there is, and he's declared over it that it's good. He's put man and the woman there. It's perfect harmony, wonderful unity. There's everything that's beautiful that God's created there in the Garden of Eden, and all of a sudden, the enemy comes against what God has been doing. And he says, did God really say? And he rejects a question, begins to bring confusion, and ultimately sin and destruction to humanity and all of creation. So when God is doing a work, there is an opposer that stands against that work. Satan here is opposing this building project, and he did everything he could to derail it. As you read the book of Ezra, if we were in Nehemiah like we've been in much of this year, we see there that the enemy used division, he used distraction, and he used demoralization as, as weapons to derail what God was doing. Because anytime we attempt something great for the Lord, we will encounter some sort of opposition from the enemy. He is the one who seeks to discourage us. And discouragement is one of his most lethal weapons. He wants to discourage you. How many of you, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand this morning, but how many of you are discouraged this morning? How many of you are worn down this morning because of whatever it may be? Maybe you got a bad doctor's visit in the last couple weeks, and then all of a sudden that's compounded on something else and something else and something else. And you just come in this morning, and you are demoralized, and you are discouraged, and you are defeated. Why? It's because you have an enemy that's speaking and working against you and the activity of God in your life. We face it as a church, as a congregation, as we seek to do something for the Lord, something that He's put in our hearts. There will be an enemy, and there is an enemy who stands against that to derail it. And he'll try to discourage us saying it's too difficult or it's too great or it's something that you can never do yourself. But here's a question. Does God ever call us to do anything that's easy? The obvious answer is no. Romans 14, 23 calls us to understand that everything that's not done in faith is sin. God always gives us something greater than what we can handle ourselves so that we faith into him and believe him for it. So the work here of the kingdom... All throughout the Bible is described as a battle. 
Sometimes it's described like tilling the field, it's planting the seed, or it's tending the harvest. It's work that's hard, it's tedious, it's laborsome, it's difficult, and there's an enemy working at every opportunity to discourage and to derail the work. It was the case for this remnant. Look at Ezra 4, 4. It says, then the people of the land discouraged, that's the, the nations that lived there, uh, that had occupied the land when the Jews had been displaced. It said that they discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. You go on and read that chapter, you see that they began to pay people to, to speak against them. They bribed them to bring accusations against them, against them. They came up with this plan and they put it on paper and they sent it to King Artaxerxes at this time, making accusations and allegations against the people of God in order to stop the work. And what happened? The work stopped. The work stopped. You go down to chapter 4, verse 24. King Artaxerxes makes a declaration. Uh, he, says, then the, he says, stop the work. And so in verse 24, then the work on the house of God is, that is in Jerusalem, it stopped. And it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And so chapter 4 here ends with a cloud hanging over the project. Chapter 15, or chapter 5, I should say, begins with one of those but God moments. Chapter 4 ends with, with things looking bleak and the people wondering, will this project ever get off the ground? Chapter 5 begins with a but God moment where God steps in and he begins to move once again, stirring hearts and leading the people to rise and to build. There in chapter 5, we read that God sent two prophets. Look at it. Chapter 5, verse 1, now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem, in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheetiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, arose and began to, be, to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. These two preachers... Obviously, we're one, of the, we're one of the or two of the most effective motivational speakers in history. Inspired by their messages, we read here that the people once again opened their pocketbooks. They opened their purses and they gave. They picked up their trowels and they picked up their tools and they went back to work. The resources were beginning to be gathered once again. The temple was beginning to be rebuilt and it was finished. And the city of Jerusalem came to be restored. That must have been some powerful preaching. How many of y'all, this is maybe a little bit of offensive, how many of you really like good preaching? I'm just curious. Half of our church likes preaching. All right, that is offensive to me. How many of you are awake this morning? I, I, I got to admit, I didn't get much sleep the last two nights until last night, and so I, I concur with you on the lack of sleep thing, but I'm, I love preaching. I've always loved preaching, and I would have loved to make a fly on the wall listening to Haggai and Zechariah preach. Motivating the people of God to, to rise and to build, to encourage them in what God was doing and had been doing in their midst. The good thing is, is we may not have their sermons on a podcast that we can read, but we got them recorded in something better, and that's the Bible. And we can read what they said there in Haggai and Zechariah and see how they encouraged and equipped the people of God. And so I want you to take your Bible or, or where your finger is, and let's look at what God said and did through the prophet Haggai. We don't have time to obviously go through Zechariah and Haggai, but we can look at one of them, the prophet Haggai. 
This prophet, as we're going to see, called the Jews who had returned from exile to redirect their priorities. You see, they'd got comfortable living and doing life the way they had been doing their life for nearly two decades. Haggai comes with Zechariah, and they begin to call the people of God to redirect their focus, to redirect their priorities, and to get about the business of the Lord's work. And so this morning, I want to speak to this subject, redirected priorities. And like the Jews in Haggai's day, we too can become discouraged, disillusioned, and distracted, and our priorities can become displaced. And so Haggai has a word for you and me this morning. And the first thing that we see here from this prophet is this. We must consider our ways. This morning, consider your ways as we look at the passage of Scripture that we're about to read. Haggai chapter 1, look with me in verse 3. It says, The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses while this house, speaking of the temple, lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Consider your ways. If you notice, he said that twice. Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruin while each of you busies himself with his own house. The Lord here told this remnant that they were suffering personal financial hardship because they were escalating their own lifestyles while neglecting the house and the worship of God. They had become become comfortable with their own pursuit of life and happiness, and they were neglecting the weightier things in life. They were neglecting the work of the kingdom. Due to the hardships that came against them, they had lost heart to rebuild. They'd moved on from the project of God and they were striving to now rebuild their own lives. They're trying to get their businesses up and running. They're trying to make money for themselves and build a a home and a future for their families. They'd become more interested in paneling their own houses rather than purchasing timber for the house of God. As a result, their finances were not under the umbrella of God's blessing, and they never seemed to have enough. That's what the argument that Haggai is making here. He says, you go to work, and you strive, and you sweat, and you, you do everything you can to get ahead, and yet the, the, the steps you're taking to get ahead, it seems like you're taking steps backwards. You earn wages, and you put it in a bag, and the bag has holes in it, and you don't even realize, you just know that there's never enough. Does that sound like... Your life? Does it sound like what you're experiencing in life? And then you hear someone make a statement like this. You've probably heard this. You can't, give out, you can't outgive God. And so you're striving. You're working hard. And, and you're saying, well, the Lord's not giving to me. He's not giving to me. And then someone else will say, you can't give to God. And you're wrestling with that. I don't even have enough to give to the Lord. How, how could I give to the Lord when, I, when I'm struggling to even make things match in my own life or meet my own bills and the things that I've got to get done? That statement, you can't give up, you can't outgive God, just kind of mulls around in your heart and in your mind. 
Well, the people here in the text were not even trying to outgive God. They had forgotten about God. They neglected that area of their lives. They were infected with a bad case of what sometimes we get infected with in church. And that is, we can't do it-itis. We can't do this. We can't do that. Uh, woe is us. Woe is me. There's no way we could ever do that. They thought because of the king's edict that they couldn't do anything about the worship of God. Sure, the resources of the kingdom might have been cut off because of Artaxerxes, but God was still going to do something through them for his namesake. So they had this idea, they, idea that they couldn't do it. Their giving was pathetic. Instead of giving to the Lord, they were comforting themselves with building their own houses and adding additions and things of that nature. They were failing in their stewardship responsibilities, and Haggai told them, basically, snap out of it. And so this morning, are you discouraged? Is your morale low this morning? Are you advancing your own lifestyle while failing in your own stewardship obligations? Uh, it's been asked, the question's been asked to me recently, why in the world are we doing, preaching to this and teaching it in the Sunday school? What's your purpose in this? You've heard me say it. I believe one of the greatest things that, that the Lord wants to do in this and through this campaign is not build building, it's to build your life. It's to take you from a place of, of little faith and to move you up a rung, one rung up the ladder and to a greater faith and, and then take you another step up to an even greater faith. I believe that's what the Lord wants to do in this project and through this project. Yes, building and renovating so that we can be, uh, have better facilities and, and better things to offer the people of this community. But really one of the great things God wants to do is take your life and make it more faithful for His glory. Amen? I didn't know if I was preaching to sleep people, dead people this morning. So Haggai here tells the people to snap out of it. He would tell us this morning to snap out of it. He's telling you to consider your ways, to get your priorities rearranged once again before the Lord. What is most important to the Lord rather than what's most important to me? And so what's most important to the Lord may require that you and I sacrifice where we don't really want to sacrifice. And let's be honest, none of us want to sacrifice. If we wanted to sacrifice and it was something that we love to do, it wouldn't be called a sacrifice, right? It's just logical there. But the Lord calls us at times in our life to, great, to give a deeper sacrifice, to do something above and beyond what we're used to doing. Sometimes we must sacrifice that paneled home in order to provide timber for the house of God. But in the process, what we're doing is we're bringing our own finances back under the umbrella of God's blessing. Here, here's a question that sometimes people ask. What is the big deal about tithing? You, you know, obviously, if you've been here at all, you know I, I'm hardcore on that. It's just a personal conviction. I, I believe the Lord in no way neglects or, or dismisses the tithe from the New Testament or the Old Testament to the New Testament. In fact, I think it even encourages that, that much more. I think it's the baseline where we begin in our stewardship with God. And as we grow in, in sanctification and holiness and we become more and more like Jesus, who's a giver, he gave himself on the cross, then our giving increases in that area as the Lord gives us ability. And so the question is, why do we need to tithe? What's the big deal there? It teaches us that we don't own anything. It teaches us that everything that I have is the Lord's, and I'm simply a steward. And it helps me in a very tangible way to say, Lord Jesus, you're the Lord of my life. And in doing that, 
it brings your life, your family, your home, our church under the blessings of Almighty God. You see, Malachi 3.10, which I'm not going to, I don't have intentions to preach that passage during this campaign, this uh, teaching time, but I'm going to reference it this morning because there's a promise there. Malachi is, he's a contemporary of Nehemiah and these guys, Haggai and them. And he's speaking to the people of God and he's saying, you've neglected the worship of God. You've neglected the giving to the worship of God. He says, you need to do what's right. You need to be obedient in this area. And they're saying, we can't do it. He says, test me in this, the Lord says. And see if I don't pour out a blessing on you. See if I don't open the windows of heaven and pour the blessing until there is no more need. And so sometimes what we do in our Christian life is we try to rationalize. There's no way this can happen if, I, if I'm obedient in this area of my life. There's no possible logical way that this could ever take place. And all God does is, is this. He says, trust me in this. Trust me in this. Here's the cool thing. As we move into this whole project, and obviously everything we do in life is expensive. You go to get gas in your car or diesel in your truck, it's expensive, right? I mean, I'm putting, we're back to that point where I'm putting $65, $75 in my truck every time I fuel up, and it makes me depressed. I'm sitting there thinking, oh, there's all my money for the whole month going in one tank of gas that will be gone in, in six days to the glory of God for that. But everything you do is expensive, right? This project's going to be expensive. I step back and at times when I be really begin to think through this and try to faith into it and I say, Lord, Lord, how are you going to do this? What is the incredible story you're going to write here? Well, how are you going to do it in a, in a particular family? Maybe you're going to bring some sort of new job, some sort of raise there. You're going to have some sort of inheritance that comes. Something's going to rise from nowhere. Or, or uh, maybe others' families are going to be like, no, we're going to go get a second job. We're going to get a part-time job delivering pizzas or whatever. And, and so we're going to just give all that money to that. I don't know what it's going to look like. Maybe some will say, you know what, I, I don't need some things in my budget. We're going to cut that out. But the Lord's going to do it somehow, some way, and it's going to be to His glory, and He's going to get all the, the credit for it. And we're just going to be able to step back in the, in the promise of Malachi 3.10 and say, this is how the Lord has done it. He said, test me in this. The blessings are flowing. There's no more need. And I'm praying that we get to the point like they were in Exodus 25 a few weeks ago, where we have to literally go back to you and say, please stop giving. I don't know that a Baptist preacher could ever do that, but Moses would do that. <laughs> Moses told the people, please stop giving. We don't, we don't have room for the stuff you're giving. We don't need it. That's the benevolent God we serve. This morning, I understand some of you may be sitting here saying, paneled housing, nothing. I'm broke. I don't have two nickels to rub together. I'm in a financial mess today. I don't have much, if anything, to give. To you, I'd say, remember, that is the same thing the Jews had been saying here for, for so long. Last week, I made a statement. I'm going to make it again. The project does not rest on your shoulders. It doesn't rest on my shoulders. It doesn't even rest on the shoulders of us as a church. The project rests on the shoulders of God. And so God wants to, and he will provide for you, he will provide for me the wherewithal for his kingdom work, whatever that may be. We just have to give him first place in our hearts and first place in our budgets. And we need then to redirect our focus from our poverty and place it back on his priorities. He will give us the very resources needed as gifts that we return to him. 
just as David said last week in 1 Chronicles 29, 14, God, we've, we're just simply given to you what is already your own. It's not ours. It's not mine. I, I, sure, I went to work, but who gave me the job? Who gave me the ability? Who gave me the intellect? Who gave me the skill set? God, everything that I have is not mine. It's yours. I'm a steward, and I'm simply using it to give back to you. Does that mean all of us can give a large amount then? It does. It absolutely does. You say, how can I give a large amount? Well, and i got to hurry here. We may only get through one point this morning. You remember the story in Mark chapter 12? Jesus is sitting outside the temple and he's watching people give. Uh, that, that gives me the heebie-jeebie sometimes when the offering plates pass because he's watching what you give. And you, you read Mark 12 and, and, and then you go and read Acts 5 and you see what Ananias and Sapphira did trying to make themselves look better than they actually were. And they gave probably a sizable gift, but they took credit for more than they gave and God judged that. So he's watching what we give. But in Mark chapter 12, what he does there is Jesus is sitting outside the temple. As people come to worship, they would put money into the treasury and to give to the Lord there. And all these people were coming by. Many of them would give large gifts because they're wealthy people. And this little poor widow woman comes along and she puts in, the Bible tells us, two copper coins. And Jesus marveled at that. In fact, he p- pulled his disciples and was like, hey boys, come over. I got something to show you. See that woman that just walked through here? Sure, I see her. She, she's poor. She obviously doesn't have a husband. They're, they're, you know, what's there to see in her? She's no one special. It wasn't like Ananias walked by, or it wasn't like uh, the, the chief priest walked by. And he says, do you notice what she gave? Sure, it looked like she just dropped a couple coins in there. She gave everything she had. Jesus marveled. He told, told the disciples that and everywhere the gospel was preached, her story would be told as well. See, she gave out of her poverty, Mark 12, 44 says, and she put everything she had, all she had to live on, she gave it to the Lord. One of the most famous stories in fundraising history comes from 1912. 1912, Dr. Russell Conwell was the pastor of Grace Baptist Church in Philadelphia. Dr. Conwell had a little girl in his Sunday school ministry at the church, which is a large and vibrant Sunday school ministry. In fact, they were so large and so vibrant, they didn't have the facilities to really house everybody. And so people had to come in waves to to be a part of Sunday school. Wouldn't that be awesome? Uh, They literally had cutoff times. We can't put any more people in in the buildings. And so he must have gotten in a conversation with this little girl, and he was lamenting how they didn't have enough space. And this little girl named Hattie Mae Wyatt took that to heart. She began to put away some money. She was a poor girl. She began to put money back as much as she could, when she could. Well, sometime later, little Hattie Mae became ill and she died. And Dr. Conwell was asked to preach the funeral. As he was meeting with the family, talking about the arrangements, the girl's mother told him that Hattie Mae had been saving her money to help the pastor in the church to build a bigger church facility. The mother gave him the girl's purse, and in that purse was 57 cents. Not a whole lot of money. But for a little girl in 1912, that was a lot of money. It was big-time money. Dr. Conwell took those coins, and he went to the bank, and he exchanged them for 57 pennies. He took those 57, 57 different pennies, he put them on some sort of display, began to tell the story of how he made. He sold those pennies and those displays to people. 
The story began to spread. The, the, the things that, that, that they were doing, Hattie Mae's story began to, to be talked about. And more and more people came and they purchased more things. They gave more and more money to the church. And eventually, her 57-cent investment, her deep sacrifice, provided the resources to build new buildings at Temple Baptist Church, Temple University, and the Good Samaritan Hospital in Philadelphia. 57 cents turned into millions of dollars. You see, little is much when God's in it. And the amount of your gift isn't as important as the nature of it. That would take us to Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. You may give millions to a project, but your heart's not right. It's not about the dollar amount you get. It's the heart and the nature of the gift in which you are giving. We obviously need money for projectors. There's two other things that I want to share with you real quick. Because he says, consider your well. Second thing is fear the Lord. I'm going to run through this quickly. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God sent them. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. Do you notice what's happening here? The people of God heeded the message from the prophet of God, and they renewed their awe and their reverence for the Lord, and that resulted in Haggai coming back to them with a promise. Because you have feared God, God says this to you, I'm with you. I am with you. And if you thought... Or if you think this morning that that's one isolated statement, he reiterates the same statement in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. He says, yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I've made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst, fear not. You see, this morning, as we think about this project and all that we're doing, it is new for us as a church. When we say it's a new day, it's new day in one sense that many of us, if not most of us, have never walked these, these steps before in our lives. And so you fear what you don't know. God would tell us this morning this, fear not. Be strong, be courageous, fear not. Why? Because I am with you. Thursday evening... We all experience a great storm. And at times, I'm sure, a scary storm. If you heard trees cracking and breaking and falling outside, if you saw creeks and rivers rising up around your house and runoff areas, it can be devastating to us, demoralizing to us. But in all of that, doesn't matter what the storm is raging around us, we can sit there and stand there secure. Why? Because God is with us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He says, fear not. So we should fear, have a holy reverence for the Lord. The third thing I want you to see is this. Believe God for more. Look at verse 6, chapter 2, verse 6. Haggai says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that, all, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace declares the Lord of hosts. This project obviously and surely would have been overwhelming to the Jews. They had little to anything. 
And yet when compared to the former temple, it may have seemed small and futile. They're not building, rebuilding everything that David through Solomon had built. It wasn't going to be nearly as extravagant as that temple. But regardless, God here says, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, and so rise and build. The wealth of the nations is going to come to you to fund this thing. This reconstruction is going to happen, and the result is the new temple would be more glorious and greater than the former. What's going to make it that way? It's because there's going to come a day, uh, several hundred years later, that the Son of God is going to stand at the temple steps, and he's going to declare himself as the Messiah, and he's going to be tried, and he's going to be persecuted, and he's going to be punished for the sins of the world. So the glory of the first temple is going to be greater in the second temple. Why? Because Jesus is going to be there. He's going to bring peace to the people. Today our project may seem overwhelming. Perhaps it may even seem to you as something that breaks from our past because it's different and modern. But regardless of the design, here's a question I want you to consider. Could it be that God will do something in and through us that's greater and more than we've ever imagined because we are redirecting our priorities from ourselves to God, and to others. Church, I would say this as your pastor. Let's believe the Lord for more. Let's believe the Lord for more. Why do our latter days have to be uh, negligent or, or, or less than our former days? I believe our best days are ahead of us. I believe our best days are clearly going to be ahead of us, that we're going to see God do in us and through us so much more than we've ever seen. That's not to speak anything about our, uh, against our past. It's to say, let's build upon that history and make something great for the glory of God as we move forward. Let's see, let's, let's stage ourselves so that 172, 173 years from now, when we're all dead and gone and they don't even remember our names anymore, Red Lane and everything else that Red Lane's become is still here making a difference for the kingdom of God. You can say amen to that. So we're facing a great challenge, but with the challenge comes great opportunities. We desire, I can say this with all honesty, I desire nothing for myself. I desire not to make a name for myself. I don't even desire to make a name for the name of Red Lane Baptist Church. I desire to make a name, a great name for, for the Lord Jesus. I want him to be worshipped in this county. I don't want there to be 75% lostness and unchurched families living in this county. I, I want that, that number to be flipped on its head. I want there to be disciples being made all over. I, I want the, the, the worship of Almighty God to be priority once again. I want to see people in heaven from this county, from these surrounding areas, from the nations because of what God has done in us and doing through us as we move forward. And so just like Haggai, Zechariah, and this remnant of people, let's go build something for Jesus. Let's sacrifice. Let's give. Let's consider our ways. Let's redirect our priorities for the Lord's priority. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for this wonderful testimony. And it's not just one isolated thing. God, we see your faithfulness in every story of the Bible. You are a faithful, faithful God. And you desire to do so many good things for us. Things that we can't even imagine right now, as Habakkuk 1.5 says. But Lord, you've got it in your plans. You are purposing to do those things. And the scary thing that I see in Scripture and all of that is 
is you've got your blessings, your purposes there, all the things you want to do in us and through us and personally, corporately. The one person, the one thing that can plug the barrel of your blessings is our lack of faith, lack of trust. So this morning, I thank you for what you're doing in your people. The stories I'm hearing, the wrestling that, that's taking place as, as people are looking at Scripture and studying Scripture and looking at their budget and, and just going back and forth. How can we do something more? Pray that would continue. God, I pray that as a church, we all can place our yes on the table and say, Lord God, we're yours. We don't have to have the page filled in. We just place our yes there. God, may we be a surrendered people in every area of our lives. Holy Spirit, I pray this morning that you would place upon our hearts, place in our minds, those areas of our life, even right now, they're not surrendered to you. God, maybe it's anger issues. Maybe it's a, a sinful thought life. Maybe it's relational problems that you're just like unwilling to, to Maybe it's finances. It's just a lack of faith there. So I don't know how I'm going to do it. And so you just continue to squeeze God out, thinking, thinking if you work harder, you're going to turn this budget upside down. And yet what we read in Haggai is, is you can work and you can earn wages, but you're putting that money into a, a bag of holes in it. Why is that? It's because you don't have faith. You're not doing things the way God has prescribed. So this morning, Lord, whatever it is in our hearts, in our lives, in our families, even in our church corporately, it's not right, it's not holy, it's not submitted and surrendered to you. May you bring that to our minds. God, lead us to confess and repent and to begin to walk in obedience so that we can experience the blessings you want to give us. Lord, this morning, the greatest need in a person's life said in this room or perhaps listening on this podcast later this week, that they need to have a relationship with you, Lord. They can't get anything else in their life in order until they first get the eternal destiny of their lives in order. So help them this morning to understand that their sin separates them from you, but you love them. You've done everything necessary to forgive their sin and to remove it through Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, as we move into a time of response, I pray just for a freedom and openness to be obedient and responsive to your activity in our lives. We not listen to the enemy or even our own flesh and say, you know what, we can deal with that later. God, may we be quick to hear this morning, quick to respond with the Spirit speaking to the church. We pray this in the name of Jesus.